Welcome to Right Now, I'm Stephen Kent. What are we to make of this past year? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that nearly every single one of us had our worlds turned upside down. At the very least, routines have been upended, and at the worst, we lost people. Some of y'all lost jobs and the businesses you built, and our kids have been locked out of school and kept away from their friends, and it's been brutal on them. Take all of that and add in political upheaval and rising extremism, and it just seems hopeless. January 6th feels like a year ago already. That's kind of how our world works now, like time isn't real. That horror show was just two months ago, and it feels like ancient history. Now, we all saw different things that day. Some of you saw patriotism. Some of you saw hate. What I saw most of all was despair. There was this essay in the Claremont Review of Books in 2016 known as the Flight 93 essay, which in short argued that Trump and the Clinton election was of such dire consequence that conservatives had no room for uncertainty about Trump. It was a storm the cockpit or we all die kind of situation. Fast forward to the 2020 election and conservative talk radio has shifted away from beating Republicans over the head with the ghost of Ronald Reagan and instead went all in for Trump because the threats, they said, are too great to worry about ideological purity. The left has gone full socialist. The election was rigged. The vote was illegitimate, they said. Therefore, all bets are off. That's when desperation sets in. Republicans barely tried in the Georgia Senate runoff that would decide the majority in the Senate. Purdue and Loeffler told people to come out and vote a second time in one breath, then turned around and said the election was fraudulent top to bottom in the next. I mean, if you have a job and a life, why on earth would you go and take the time to vote again in a rigged election? It doesn't make sense. One day later, the MAGA crowd descends on Washington thinking they're red-pilled or awake and aware of a grand conspiracy. But they're not. They're on the black pill. The same dead end, everything is awful, 1619 view of the country where we're all living a lie. One where we're not the good people or the good country that we say we are. Successful movements aren't built on despair. But you sure as hell have to have a sense of urgency. Great line from a great movie, rebellions are built on hope, people. And we're going to talk to a hopeful guy today. And my co-host for this one's my friend, Brad Palumbo, columnist for the Washington Examiner and host of the Breaking Boundaries podcast. Brad, welcome to the table. Hey, it's good to be with you. Absolutely. And we are thrilled to welcome our guest today, Spencer Clavin, to the show. Spencer is the host of the Always Excellent Young Heretics podcast. He's the associate editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind. Spencer, welcome to Right Now. Hey, Stephen. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So there's a lot of places we could start, but in relation to what I was just riffing about a bit, I want to ask you, what is the black pill and who is on it? <laughs> yeah, it's a topic of a lot of, it's probably a topic now of more conversation than the red pill, which is how the whole pill discourse got started, right? So way back around like 2016. The idea was that we're all in the matrix. And if you've seen the movie, you know that the way you get out of the matrix, you take the red pill and you realize just how deeply you've been deceived. And it's been pointed out that this the, the red pill discourse is a very right wing thing. You know, yeah. you've been deceived. Into it has this. an ugly element I, to it. Well, yeah, there are. I mean, there's like all of these things. I'm going to I was sort of thinking of this as you were talking, have multiple strands yeah. um that that like there's there's a i think a really valid sort of form of red pilling in which you kind of realize that a lot of the 
answers that the Republican Party has been giving are answers to questions that are a little bit outdated yeah. um, and that like that some of these conversations have to move on into the digital era and all this stuff. But it's also the case that like woke is the sort of analog on the left, which also implies waking up right out of out of some kind of haze. Um, and I'm obviously much more critical of that view of the world, but that a lot of people on the left and the right are having this sense that the sort of framework they've been sold is just itself an illusion, itself wrong, and that there's something much more radical that needs to be done. Um, and out of this comes, out of the red pill discourse comes all of these other forms of pill discourse, right? There's there's the blue pill, but then there's like the clear pill, there's, you know, and then there's black pill and white pill. And black America pill is the despair. America a lot of pills. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is what they mean when they talk about the crisis of addiction. No, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the black pill, white pill sort of dichotomy is if you take the black pill, as you say, you have a form of despair. You, you just think it's, you basically believe that it is hopeless. Um, and the image of the like meme image of this, right, is the doomer, is the like kind of desiccated, just sad uh, millennial staring into a void. Um, I want to make a distinction actually between the forms of um, let's say kind of urgency that you identified in your opener. Yeah. I don't think it's quite right to lump flight 93 in with January six as like all one type of black pill. And actually I'm not sure that, that flight 93 actually represents the black pill uh, for the simple reason that Anton who, who wrote that back in the day, this was before I was at, at Claremont, but he, he was not, uh, arguing to like do something extraordinary in the sense of outside the scope of American government. He was arguing that people should vote for a guy who was running for president. Um, and he was an extraordinary guy. And the reservations that conservatives and Republicans had about him were serious. And Anton was arguing that it was simply time to disregard those reservations because of the urgency of the moment. But the true black pill, which is like the Jan 6 situation, is the system itself is so rigged that there's no way even by voting for anybody or doing anything legal, we could uh, work our way back yeah. to some kind of uh, of resolution. And like that to me is what I think is deeply wrong. And as you say, which is, is, is sort of doomed to failure. I've argued this on the show a lot that we're we're really kidding ourselves if we think that we've reached that point. And if you read like, you know, Federalist 28, in which Hamilton describes what it looks like to get to that point, to get to the point of actually needing to stage a revolution within America against the American government because it becomes so oppressive. Um, you know, we haven't even begun to try the actual things that would. That yeah, would and, and the American Minds yeah. kind of opening salvo essay on the website is a, is a really great call to action. It's a call against despair. It's a call against the idea of believing that there is no way that we can fix this. And I think that you are are correct, that there is a distinction between what Flight 93 and that essay was about. It was about engaging in the election and believing that you know, the, the, the moment was urgent and we really had to do something and fall in line behind a certain guy. But my, I guess my, my beef with that is that the whole Donald Trump MAGA thing is very much tied up in the I alone can fix it element to governance and, and winning the battle against the Democrats and the left. And so if you really believe that and buy into that entire ideology or that entire idea, then if Donald Trump loses the election, we're back in crisis and we're back on flight 93 again. And so that's, hmm. that's how you get this moment where if the election is lost, then we have no other choice but to do something radical. Yeah, I can, I can really see that. I think uh, that 
there is definitely a sort of cult leader worship element of the Trump coalition. I think it, it has been exaggerated into the whole of the Trump phenomenon. And I think that like Flight 93 itself and a whole bunch of folks at Claremont and outside, right, have have really open eyes about the serious moral yeah. deficiencies that Trump presented, right? Um, and, you know, even the kind of kookier elements of Trumpism that have involved, for example, like evangelical worship at uh, at Trump rallies, right, are are premised on the idea that God uses imperfect messengers, that God uses people like, you know, uh, King David, who is a uh, sort of, you know, adulterous uh, and, <laughs> and, and ultimately murderous, right? I mean, this this is like a big theme in evangelical discourse. Um, I don't want to, you know, disavow the whole like golden statue of Trump part of this. And I think that that feature of things uh, kind of got mashed up in this really toxic way with like the QAnon stuff um, from the moment that Trump said on the night of the election that he had won. That was the that was the moment in which I thought we shaded over from this sort of pugnacious. So Spencer, um, if, yeah. if that's kind of the diagnosis, right, what does the alternative look like? What does a truly white pilled, not nihilistic vision of conservatism or the American right? Actually, what would that actually resemble? A politics of hope. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so I think actually that this is what I this is why I'm saying there's kind of there are multiple dimensions to the whole Trump phenomenon. Like there there was a strain, a serious strain of of just exuberance and joy in in the Trump phenomenon as well. It had to do with loving America, right? With with actually having a vision of what it was, what what kind of good and prosperous and and gracious land we were trying to defend, trying to get back to. Um, and the question for on everybody's table right now is what does this, what does the conservative movement even look like now that Trump is is out of the picture? And I should say that I like am not a Trump 2024 guy at all. I think that he's kind of served his role. If God was using him, he's like done you know, using him in, in, in <laughs> politics. Um, and and I, I guess, you know, one one question for me is like what is the america that we were trying to make great again right what what was the thing um that we like felt a deep sense of loss about because a lot of that loss um was deeply felt but you know now needs to be articulated in a in a more precise way i mean for me it's it's you know to be not to be naive about it but it's relatively simple it's that we are endowed with our creator by certain with certain inalienable rights and those, you know, the government is set up to protect those rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And and I think that, you know, these kind of basic urgencies uh, behind which lie a lot of real concern about like social crack up in America, right? This is the sense that, that America was premised on a certain form of, you know, moral and religious cohesion, which now feels not just like it's slipping away, but like it's under assault. Um, I, a lot of this is 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 cultural and and some of it is is like a you know a reaction a creed occur right a reaction against these erosions of of um of kind of basic social contract i think like one way forward to a kind of optimism and i've i've argued this a lot on the show is um orienting your political attitudes in the most local way possible. And I mean this both because we just like don't have national power, like conservatives don't have, have national power in, in a big way. Um, but also because I noticed that my own emotional landscape 
was really key to what was going on in these big national movements um, and not to what was actually going on around me. Like people, one reason why it's kind of kooky to think that you need to overthrow the U.S. government, if, if indeed that's what the January 6th people thought, is that, you know, we haven't even really tried to do like what the left is pretty good at doing, which is, you know, getting on the school boards, like making arguments to our neighbors about who should vote, who should run in local elections and who should win those and stuff like in California where they're, you know, ousting Gavin Newsom now like that to me seems more. You know, there's a sense that something is deeply wrong. There's also a deep love for this place that has been kind of uh, just ravaged by progressive politics. Um, and the more people I think invest in that local idea of like, what is it? My, what yeah. is my community? It's, it's the question you know? of, of taking action versus sort of looking to your neighbor to, to fix things yourself. And I really sure. believe like at the core of the American mind and what you guys are doing there, like it's, it's a good thing. It's a call to action. It's a belief that like you have to actually step forward and what you're saying about localism. <laughs> this, this is a, a little bit of a funny connection, but I was uh, rewatching a little bit of um, Avatar, the last airbender this week. <laughs> and I know well, I know we're all well, fans here at this table. Yeah, all of your yeah. kids are watching this show on Netflix. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, talk to your kids and they'll tell you. But so in Avatar Last Airbender season two, there's this moment where Aang is looking for Appa, his, his best friend who has been taken. Oh, and Appa, and he's, he's kind of given up. It's he's kind of given up on this head. search. And Katara asks him, like, why? And Aang says, hope is a distraction which is not something you would expect from like a, a little monk, like this airbender, air nomad monk. And you go, oh, but that actually makes sense. Like there's this sort of monkish quality to the idea that hope could be you sitting around looking at the stars like Luke Skywalker, looking at the twin suns, waiting for someone else to do something for you and waiting to, to have them fix the problem instead of taking action. And so I guess in, in an offhand way, like, do you think that that yeah. makes sense, that sometimes hope can make us sit back and wait too long rather than just taking the action we need to take? Well, this is kind of interesting. I mean, I have noticed and I, you know, because I make the rounds among like, you know, go on the Daily Wire and do a discussion about this <laughs> stuff or whatever um, or go wherever, you know, uh, and at the American Mind, for example, we have a kind of healthy engagement with with our readers. Um and I, I totally notice a kind of suspicion about optimism. And I think it's not so much that people people worry hope is a distraction is that they they worry it's uh, it's like it's like copping out. Like if you, if you're really going to be a hard nosed realist about it, you have to realize that everything is just, we're just done for, you know? And to a certain extent, I wonder whether this is baked into the, the conservative mindset, like a sort of temptation to that attitude, just because conservatism, a big part of conservatism is to be aware of how precious and fragile our institutions are and how easily they can go astray and how like humans are very fallen and yeah. everything, every change can. Um, and so we're very, very ready to describe how each thing is going to cause the crack up of the Republic 10 years down the line. Um, and people are very, very defensive of that attitude. And when you when you say, well, actually, like they, that could happen, but there's also a lot of potential, right? The digital revolution, this local, mm -hmm. this new local investment thing, like offers a lot of potential for hope. People um, at first think that you're kind of just copping out 
on them. Yeah, it feels like a deflection extent. sometimes. Well, yeah, right. it's part of the problem, Spencer, that when conservatives talk about this kind of thing, it's often framed in terms of what they are against, right? They are against the left. They are against mm. socialism. They're against wokeness and cancel culture. But obviously, you're identifying a lot of things, and there are a lot of things, whether it's the Constitution, whether it's limited government, whether it's family or faith or social cohesion that the right is traditionally for, that American conservatism is traditionally for. But I feel like what's at the forefront of the conversation most often is what they're against. And it's hard to see how that lends itself to a politics based in hope. This is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think we are, look, we're one sort of move toward the black pill that I will take is I think we are in a serious moment of regime crisis. And I think that the fact that people are taking to the streets at all sort of speaks to that. Um, I also think, by the way, you know, there's this there's this moment in um, really near the end of the Revolutionary War. It's the Newburgh conspiracy. It's called uh, you guys probably know about this, that like at a certain point, the soldiers started to get antsy because they hadn't been paid. Um, and, and there was a conspiracy floating around in Washington's camp that they should just defect. They should just like peace out. And there is this moment, new, you know, Washington made this famous speech to kind of put this thing down. And there was this moment at which he says, look, there's people are saying that if you step back and you deliberate about this, then what you're really doing is you're just you're just copping out. You're just being weak. Um, and I hear that a lot also on the conservative movement that like things are so bad that if you take a moment and actually advise that we sort of deliberate about this, um, then you're just weak. You're just you're just sort of uh, falling over to, to the left. Um, and, and Washington says, you know, down that road, madness lies. And I really agree with this. I think that like, you know, the, the idea that all we have, like, we just have to rush into action because everything is so bad, um, does kind of conduce. I mean, there are certain crisis moments at which that's true, but in, it, right now, for example, when we're sort of two years out from the next election, um, thinking very deeply about what we're for is kind of the, the right. thing. Well, when you think do, about, you know what I mean? when you think about instances in the past where we've rushed into extreme action in the face of a perceived crisis, I would say many of those haven't aged particularly well. Yeah, and That's and, good point. That's and good point. Spencer, you you know all about it. Like with the Newberg address, part of what Washington was chiding with uh, against this anonymous writer was the idea, and and I I sort of liken it a little bit to the Russian roulette analogy of of Flight ninety three <laughs> essay is that like there is no time for thinking, for prudence, for reason, uh, only action. And if you are one of those people who say, like, we need to take a breath here and decide whether or not we're about anarchy or whether or not we are about deliberation and a plan, that you're a squish, that you're not really involved in the fight and that you don't have it in you you're to weak. save the republic. And that's the but, stuff I mean, that drives me crazy. Well, right. I mean, so again, not not to you know make this whole conversation about Flat 83, but yeah. just in <laughs> of it again, you know, like, there was a crisis. There, there was a date there on that one, right? You had to vote and you had to make that decision. Um, and so I, I don't want to say that like there's no such thing as a, a time for choosing, as they, as they call it. Um, but I, I do sort of suspect, you know, I was talking to Charles Kessler, who's another Claremont guy, and we do a podcast on the Claremont Review of Books. Um, and we were comparing this this January 6th moment slash this react the whole reaction to all of the court cases that the left kind of fought in the lead up to the election, right? That that they you know the rules were changed. And and now there are some calls to somehow centralize election integrity efforts to, you know, form a national bureau or whatever. Um and we published an essay kind of arguing against 
this and in favor of this kind of uh, the gradual process whereby the electoral count was finally certified after this very contentious election. Um, and, and Charles was comparing it to post 9-11, which is obviously a much bigger catastrophe than the loss of an election. It was another moment in which, you know, when you get when you get punched in the gut, you know, when you really something happens that is just really devastating, um, there's this impulse to, like, do something about it right now. Um, and a lot of the stuff that conservatives are now sort of reconsidering, the forever war stuff, the Patriot Act, right, like that, that's a hangover from that moment when we sort of leapt kind of rashly into into action. And I think that there is an analogy there that we are now in this moment where like we've suffered this great loss. Um, we're, we're very, very loath even to believe that it really happened, right? There's this very serious kind of like uh, wrangling over this, the stolen election, I th- which I think, you know, if that's true, then our answer should be like, you know, gradually and slowly fight the court cases that, you know, that return, overturn these kind of, in some cases, unconstitutional election rules, as opposed to, right, suddenly, like, we just leap catastrophically yeah. into, into... And I, I mean, so as, I guess, as you've noted in your podcast numerous times, like, the, the court battles were fought, the court battles were lost, got to move on. Right. And uh, you mentioned it, so I'll just go ahead and uh, put in a quick plug. You are watching Right Now with Stephen Kent. You can watch us on YouTube. Please like and subscribe. And if you are listening via podcast, leave us a rating and review. Five stars would be nice. Tell us what you think about the show. Um, and just to, just to kind of go back into it here, Spencer, in the, in the thick of it. So we've got this fight. We've got this problem that we need to decide whether or not we're going to give in to despair or we're going to rally around a politics of hope. I kind of want to back up a little bit uh, to something that you were mentioning about sort of the politics of optimism. Because Brad and I both come from the libertarian world. And I even do a segment on this show where I like to share some good news, good trend lines. We'll do do it at the end of this episode. But there is this part of me that goes, oh, man, like, I I don't know if the world is really getting better. I feel something inside of me that says it is really getting worse. And that's because I'm also a Christian. Like, it is, it is part of my faith that the world is going to fall apart and requires a savior. Like, revelation doesn't come about because things are going super well. Like, that's also baked into my very being. And so I'm always torn between this sort of conservative instinct about whether or not, um, you know, we really need to fight back and try to sort of save um, this moment or this libertarian aspect that says, you know, things are actually getting better. Human progress is afoot. Hmm. Well, you definitely, everybody needs to take the fall of man pill, right? Like this is something, and that is Mm -hmm. the blackest pill of all. And like the, there's a lot, I think, of discourse out there that involves not having taken the fall of man pill. I mean, this is Madison's great insight, right? Going back again to the founding is that actually like, you know, if angels were to govern men, then, then no laws would be necessary. But in fact, like we live among in this kind of shambolic world in which things fall apart. Um, yeah. you know, and, and I was noticing I, you were on Instagram. I saw, uh, kind of like thinking about some of these, some of these issues and you were, you were making a comparison with, with Lord of the Rings, which like, I really like, I think that the idea of Lord of the Rings is kind of that power corrupts, but it exists in the world like there. And, and so there is a sense in which, you know, our actual, our reaction to coronavirus, for mm-hmm. example, is sort of premised on this idea that you can sweep all death off of the playing field that somehow you can arrange things just right and then like nobody's ever going to die and there won't be any costs to that and i think that like there is a level in which you have to take the pill that like that is not the world that yeah. we live in we and live it's in, and you know, you know speaking to lord of the rings because i was watching it again over over the weekend 
I just showed oh, my too. daughter. Okay, yeah. yeah, I just showed my daughter the Fellowship of the Ring. And mm-hmm. so let's talk about the libertarian conservative divide because every time I watch this movie, I see something different. This time I saw Boromir and Aragorn both kind of wanting in their hearts the ring of power. Everybody wants the ring of power. Galadriel wanted it, but she said no. Boromir, his, his, his kingdom is surrounded by the army of darkness. He is feeling desperate. And eventually he goes for that ring of power because it's, it, he feels it's the only thing that can be done to wield it, to turn back the forces of darkness. And I saw in him right. the common or higher good conservatives in that moment. Like they want to wield the ring. And Aragorn, I saw the libertarian going, no, I don't trust this. I don't trust I myself. mean, Spencer, isn't everything that, that you were just talking about in terms of power corrupting, isn't that the kind of the basis, the philosophical basis of limited government conservatism, small government conservatism? The reason there was a fusion, a coalition between libertarians and conservatives, it was because we agreed that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Centralized planners can't manage the minute not a knowledge of planning everything in different parts of the country, in different situations. But it almost feels like some of the people who are tapping into the philosophical or ideological trends that you've aptly described, right, seem to be getting away from that lesson here, like the, the Lord of the Rings, right? So how do you grapple with all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a there's a valid caution in identifying what happens if you wield the one if you just try to wield the one ring. And like, you know, I I, I definitely agree that Boromir is there as this kind of Lord Acton, this re- this reminder of of what absolute power does to people. I mean, that's sort of the premise of the ring is it represents the use of absolute power. Yeah. But the universe of the books is very complicated, right? And you mentioned Galadriel, who's a really good example of this, right? Like, because we live in a fallen world and because the ring is not actually getting thrown into Mordor until the end of days, right? Power exists. And the whole premise of the story is that you have to find some way to engage with this corrupting, terrifying, tempting power while also, you know, maintaining your justice. And and Galadriel has a ring of her own, right? And she wields it in a way that is just and like she is able to resist, you know, overreaching. My only premise here and I, you know, without kind of plunking for like full on common good conservatism, because there are many strands there too, right? And at it, it its it is base, I think it consists of a very valid observation, which is like we wield power. Like, yes, we do want to reduce the, the scope of government uh, insofar as, as, as possible to, to reduce its intervention in our lives, um, to use it for protecting our rights rather than infringing upon them. Um, but even like the most dyed in the wool libertarian, right. Identifies a good, which is, which is individual autonomy and personal liberty and uh, presumably aspires to use the force of government to protect that good. Right. I mean, this is like how people, interact together in a political way. And so people get very like antsy when, when folks are talking about the common good, because there's this kind of big black box and in it, like there may sit, you know, wanting, wanting to reestablish like fertility rates, or there may sit like full on Catholic integralism. And I think that like, yeah. Yeah. I I was just going to ask, right. Because the thing that chills me a little bit about common good conservatism is I don't want other people's version of the good forced on me and forced on the entire country. But is the middle ground here localism in the sense that if the good is being pursued, but at the localist level possible, right, not one federal government that is massive and powerful and enforces whoever wins every four years on the whole country, but if the good is being pursued in your city, in your town, at your town council meeting, then I feel like it's it's 
averts that problem of a, forcing a one-size-fits-all good on a diverse and sweeping country. So I agree with you about the localism insofar as possible. I am generally of the opinion that the you know answers to these kind of like thorny questions we always raise in in public, especially the left is is fond of doing this. I think of raising these edge cases, these tricky questions, as a way of you know noting fairly that you know there's there's no kind of one size fits all solution to a lot of these questions. And the, I believe the smaller the community in which you adjudicate these issues, uh, the better. And you're but on the other hand, right, there are some things at which like the level at which for example those rights to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness need to be defended is 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 national precisely because they're non-negotiable right there are some goods like all governments impose or suggest or imply some good that is ultimate and not negotiable and like again even a purely libertarian government would presumably say at the national level that individual liberty is a good and we have to use the force of the state to enforce it. I think like, I, I just don't think there's any getting away from that. And and even though I agree that, yeah, like the, the further we can devolve this stuff at the local level, the better, there are also some, you know, higher level national conversations that we're having. And and discourse about the common good in its purest form is is just that. It's just saying, well, there is a good, right? And the government is is kind of set up to defend it. Spencer, um, this is no a, a minor it. rhetorical question, but do you make a distinction yeah. between common good and higher good? I sometimes see both thrown around uh, in the discourse between sure. uh, libertarians and conservatives on this. Common good is a broader term than higher good. Um, it, it can refer to like roadways, right? Just as a matter of sort of pure political philosophy. If you look up in like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, like what's the common good? It's simply goods that we all like we, we understand ourselves as citizens related to one another in a polity. Um, and there are certain things that we like come together to kind of endorse because they benefit all of us. Higher good. Yeah, is is like a little bit more narrow, I think, and would would apply more specifically to those like elevated concepts that, again, are part of our founding documents. Right. Right. Liberty. Life. These so things let me are like push that. back on one concept here, and that's yeah. that I'm not sure I agree with the framing as libertarian or, or a limited government conservatives having their own vision of the common good versus you know, the common good conservatives having a different vision of the common good. Because I actually think the libertarian or traditional conservative fusionist case is not about there being a common good, but it's about being every individual being left to pursue their own vision of the good. Kind of like Adam Smith's, you know, invisible hand of the marketplace. And then each individual pursuing their own vision of the good results in a collective outcome that nobody, no one person planned. Right. And so I almost but don't think that yeah. is a common good. But isn't that statement right, that each individual should be able to do this thing like that in itself is a good. That's an assertion about the good, which is that it is good for individuals to have liberty. Right. Yeah, I guess it is, but it's it's a more decentralized way of thinking about it in terms of the the power to decide what the common good is is not made by one group of people or one decision-making body or institution. It's decentralized across 330 million people. I mean, my 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 point is only that you haven't escaped the part of government where you posit a good, right? You have said in this scenario that liberty is a good. And one question I have for you actually is whether sure. you think it's a good because it'll come up with the best outcome or whether you think it's a good per se, like it's good for people to be free. So we should let them, you know, and the outcome. Even if it ends in ruin. 
Yeah, and this is exactly. where where you get kind of the the tough edge cases, right? Like the hard drug usage. And I I think in most cases, leaving people to their individual liberty, particularly in the economic sphere and the market sphere, does result in the best outcome. I think though there are some outcomes where leaving people to their own devices might result in outcomes that we would judge as worse off, but fundamentally, and maybe this is just an ideological question, if that's their choice with their life with what they want to do, I think ultimately, maybe you're right. Maybe this is a version of the common good. But, See, but this is what I mean, right? Yeah, exactly. Being I agree left with to you. their I own agree. ends is is right. what I yeah, would and support. I, I think just to, to throw my hat in here real quick, where I am at, and I'm a little bit undecided on this question because it's a good one, Spencer. I think at the end of the day, going back to my faith, like I sort of believe that we're we're all headed to the same place. Uh, there is only <laughs> one. There is only one ending to this story. So there's only so much point to trying to exert our control through government over our friends and neighbors to try to foment the kind of world that we want to see because the ending is going to be the same regardless. Which and it's is not that, the only option. You don't only have to pursue this through the government. And right? so I just the temporary good to me does seem like giving people the choice. For people uh, who, who didn't catch it earlier, we are being joined today by Spencer Claven, The American Mind, and the Claremont Review of Books. He's also the host of the Young Heretics podcast. Great show. And the reason we had Spencer on today is because this debate is just like ripping open the political right. And it's, it's a good fight to have. It's a good debate and a discussion to have. And Spencer, I appreciate you uh, joining us today to, to help have that conversation. We've got a lot more on this topic uh, to cover in the next couple of months. Before I let you go, I told you I would ask you real quick though about Avatar the Last Airbender because we got some <laughs> this is some hope people if you are there if you, you are go. tired of what is on television you can just quit it all and get a Paramount Plus subscription because Avatar the Last Airbender is coming back with new series and movies. I have hope for this. Uh, Spencer, what are you excited about with the uh, this news about Avatar opening up? So I'm like a total latecomer to Avatar. I my boy Josh was is like really into it. I think he watched it when it originally aired. I'm totally oblivious. Um, and then we watched the whole thing all the way through. I haven't gotten all the way through Legend of Korra, so I guess I'm not a completist yet. Oh, and also I haven't watched the like the movie that shall not be named the M Night Shyamalan. <laughs> uh, apparently, it should remain that like, way. How far into exactly, Korra are you? I'm like. I'm on season two, I think. Wonderful, yeah. Season two is excellent. Amon, yeah. great villain, taking on communism oh. in season one of the show. Like that that show just taught me a lot about the idea of cosmic balance because like Star Wars as a franchise always tried to have this message about keeping things in balance and, and really controlling your emotions and the way that the universe is structured between dark and light. But Avatar actually does it. Mm. And I'm excited yeah. for you to finish getting through The Legend of Korra because they go <laughs> far deeper on, uh, on the cosmic balance in that universe. Well, one thing that I liked about Avatar was the redemption arc. My favorite, one of my favorite characters huh. was Zuko. Right, and yeah. you are such a Zuko fan. I, I am. He was the best, and I loved Uncle Iroh too, and his tea. Yeah. But does he get his own thing? I, he yeah. Might, yeah, he yeah. is. But think about how yeah. poignant that message is right now in our age of cancel culture, of a bad tweet ruining someone. They they're done. They can never come back. Well, this dude started the show as the villain and ended up making a really honest transformation and being one of the good guys by the end. And if that's not a message that that we need right now, more of, I don't know what is. I am mm. looking forward most to the possibility of an Iroh series. So give yeah, me, me, give too, me too. Uncle Iroh traveling the world for his teas. That's all we need. 
Spencer Clavin, thank you so much for joining the show this week. It was really nice to meet you and talk, and talk to you. What a pleasure it's been. Thank you both. Thanks. All right, we'll do it again. All right, everybody, we asked you for feedback, and feedback is what you gave us. So if you're watching us on YouTube right now, make sure you're subscribed, like, click the like button, and then write us a comment. We might just read it next week. But for now, we asked you not to hold back, and I think it's fair to say you didn't hold back. So we're going to be reading some feedback from, from our viewers from last week. And Stephen, I got a funny one for you uh, for the first one. One Twitter user wrote, oh, my God, he looks like he's 12 years old. I'm 31. Merman over here. Better uh, than looking like you're 50, right? <laughs> my daughter is almost 12 years old. That's wrong. All right. I've got one from Larry C. on the YouTube page. Great concept. Total dork for the show. I mean, really, come on, get some talent. Well, I will say, I think with Rude. the amount of, of uh, Lord of the Rings and Avatar references we've made, we can't take too much offense at the we term dork We were just like a couple, a couple threads short of like Batman references and Wonder Woman talk. But we're yeah. making dork cool again, Stephen. Well, I don't think that's a thing. Let me think it. <laughs> so this is a good one, right? This is actually a positive one. In a comment on our YouTube page, Rifat Islam said, love the, the points on endless war and the need to move toward a multi-ethnic movement. The latter was especially spot on as even in New York City, the districts that swung more towards Trump were minority precincts. I mean, I, hey, I love hearing stuff like that because one of the things that you and I very much believe is that the next generation, the future of the right, has to be one that appeals to, to people all across American life. And if we're doing that so far, we're winning. Nothing wrong with that. And end the wars. All right. Next one. This is from Dave McLean, an acquaintance of mine from my hometown. He called me out for using the term the swamp to describe Washington, D.C. And Dave says, seems like with the refreshing direction you're going with this, you might consider a jettison of the old guy memes and retake intellectually Washington. Having watched one of my favorite buildings be ransacked by reactionaries in January, wouldn't that be a step that right now could take? I hear what you're saying, and I already responded to Dave in the comments as well, but like, I think we really got to be careful about idealizing Washington too much. Like, there is this idea that it is the West Wing in mm -hmm. some people's minds. Some people think it's House of Cards. I think it is Veep personally here. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I get what Dave's saying, but like, this is the swamp. This is a place of yeah. self dealing, people getting rich off of doing things they shouldn't. I don't know. I, I'll always say, like, Trump may not have drained it, but dubbing the swamp was one of the truest things he said. You and I both li have lived in the city, lived in the area. And if, if there's one thing you see here, it's that swamp and swamp denizens are who call the shots in the city. So I, I don't agree with that comment. But hey, that, that's why we asked you for your take. Yeah, it's, it's tied to like, we want government to be good. And we should trust our government and our elected officials, but only to a certain Only when they only deserve that extent. trust. And yeah. right now, I, don't, I certainly don't think they do. Yeah, I hear you. So uh, you have the next one. Yeah, so this is an email from Daniel B. He said he appreciates the show, and it's nice to see an intelligent discussion of issues from a conservative perspective. We need an alternative to the Trump, Limbaugh, Breitbart brand of conservatism with all its hate and conspiracy theories. Well, I will say we're not interested in hate or conspiracy theories, just the Lord of the Rings and the Legend of Korra. So on this show, it, it sounds like we're doing something right there. You have found the alternative right now. And from the YouTube comments, Patton writes, the soy is strong with these folks. I blame you for this. Yeah, I'll say there's not a lot of soy in my house. There's a lot of red meat. 
and burgers and steak. Cooked all the way through the meat. Cooked well you- done with ketchup, everybody. That is how we it's eat not, our steak. That is real. the right way. And if you don't agree, well, tell us in the comments, but you're wrong. So. And if you want more of Brad's bad food takes, subscribe to his podcast, Breaking Boundaries for the Worst, every single week. All right. We also have uh, some good news we want to share with you to continue with our theme of hope. We're going to be doing this every week on the show. We do have some reasons to be cheerful. The pandemic accelerated many things in 2020, including the decline of capital punishment. 18 prisoners were uh, sent to death row last year. That's the lowest since 1976 when the Supreme Court revived the practice. The federal government carried out a majority of the executions. At the state level, Colorado ended the death penalty this year. New Hampshire struck it down from the law in 2019, live free or die. And Virginia is poised to follow suit this month pending the governor's signature. Now, I'm for a little less state-sanctioned violence. Uh, That gets two thumbs up from me. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I think that's good news. Look, I think if you think the government is bad at pretty much everything it does, that should probably extend to the most important thing it does, the death penalty, taking people's life away. So the less we have of that, the less opportunity we have for executing innocent people. To me, that's a win. But on a slightly lighter note, right, my thing, I saw today the news that an international space hotel will be opening up within a decade that, that it will be expensive at first, so only for wealthy people. But here's my thing. Is this the latest project from Disney? I, <laughs> actually don't know. Elon Musk covers behind it. But here, here's my thing, right? It's in our lifetime, Stephen. Yeah. Space travel will be something accessible to middle class people, N- not just the, the uber rich. That is honestly a realistic prediction we can make. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing. Thank you, Elon Musk. You can sponsor our show, Elon, if, uh, if you ever want to. Send us some doge. <laughs> Folks, thanks for watching or listening. We will be back next week with a new episode. So drop in again. See you next time on Right Now.